Today's scripture reading is Mark 14, 26 through 52. Mark 14, 26 through 52. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and they said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he, and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still sleeping, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had giving, given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. My name is Tony Freitas, and I'm a member of the church here. My wife, Holly, and I have been attending this church for the past three years. Um, I'm also known as the husband of Holly, because most people know Holly very well. Holly and I serve with the Evangelical Free Church of America International Mission, which is called Reach Global. 
And Holly right now is in Congo, and she's doing an, uh, a, a screening of children for the Global Fingerprints Child Sponsorship Program. And so she is there right now, and I wish she could be here, but she's not. And she sends her greetings to you. Well, as you heard in the passage this morning, there's a lot there, and there's a lot to unpack. So I'm going to do my best to do it in, in as short amount of time as possible, but just said I had at least two hours, so I think we'll be okay. So last week, we were in the upper room celebrating the Passover feast with Jesus and his 12 disciples. This morning, we're going to go with Jesus and his disciples into the garden. Now, a timeline of events on the evening before Jesus' death, I believe, is a critical part of this in helping us understand many of the details that unfolded that night. The Passover celebration feast began at about 6 p.m. Jesus and his disciples would have eaten for approximately two hours, and then they walked to the Mount of Olives, which is about an hour's walk from the upper room. This would have put Jesus and his disciples in the garden around 9 p.m. Later that evening, Judas would betray him. And then the next morning at 9 a.m. on the third hour, Jesus would be crucified. So let's pick, off, pick up where Jeff left off last week. Mark 14, 26 to 31. Now, a familiar walk with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane turns into a difficult conversation. A familiar walk with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane turns into a difficult conversation. So it's approximately 8 p.m., and after a wonderful Passover meal, some really deep conversations with Jesus and the traditional singing of a hymn, it was now time to go for a walk to the garden where Jesus and his disciples would frequently go to pray. Now, I love maps. This morning, it'll give us a better understanding of the distance between the room and the garden. If you look at the map up there, you can see in the lower left-hand corner, that's the upper room, and the Mount of Olives is along that dotted line up to the right. That was about an hour walk. Now, I can only imagine that the disciples had a lot on their mind when they left that room. Things like, is this really happening? Is this really going to be our last meal with Jesus? Is Judas really going to be the one who betrays Jesus? Did he really replace the old covenant with a new covenant? There were a lot of deep things to process. Maybe even some of them were thinking, man, if I just close my eyes, it'll all go away. That would have been me. And I know of at least three of the disciples who would probably agree. Just closing my eyes, it'll all go away. 
As Jesus and his disciples were walking to the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells them that they're all going to fall away in their loyalty to him. This wasn't something new to Jesus. This was foretold in Zechariah 13.7, where Zechariah describes this event over 500 years earlier when he said, Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. Strike the shepherd, referring to Jesus, and the sheep, referring to the disciples, will be scattered. Then Jesus promises to meet them in Galilee following his resurrection. Now, Jesus is already planning a resurrection party. Somehow, Peter and the others, they must have missed this comment because it's not mentioned again. Now, personally, I'd want to know the date, the time, the place, because that's how I'm wired, and I don't want to miss that party. Now, Peter, he's still processing the comment that Jesus made saying that they'd all fall away. So Peter just says what's on his mind. Those guys might fall away, but I won't. Have you ever said something that you wish you could take back? All of a sudden, the conversation becomes focused on you. This might have been the case for Peter. And I can imagine Jesus looking at Peter and saying, well, since you brought it up, you should probably know. And then Jesus reveals to Peter that before the rooster crows twice, Peter will deny him three times. What's Peter's response? But he said emphatically, even if I must die, I will not deny you. And the other disciples took Peter's lead and they said the same thing. Yeah, what, what he said. Even if we have to die, that's what we'll do. Don't worry, Jesus. We're here for you. We got your back. The disciples believed that they were strong enough to stand with Jesus to the very end. Now, couldn't Jesus have warned Peter sooner so that Peter could have strengthened his faith through prayer and somehow avoided the denial that Jesus was speaking of? Later in the passage, while in the garden, Peter, or Jesus warned Peter to stay awake and pray. Although his spirit might be willing, his flesh was weak. Jesus understood that the battle between the spirit and the flesh was something that Peter was going to have to deal with. He understood what it was to be tempted by Satan. Jesus faced every temptation that we do, yet he never sinned. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying to his father and for each time Satan tempted him he responded by quoting scripture Jesus understands mankind 
and how an unprepared heart is just the foothold Satan needs to bring down a man's spirit. Jesus knew that Peter was going to struggle because Satan had asked if he could sift him like wheat. If you look at Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus was praying for Peter before he even begun his own struggles. He was praying for Peter before he even began his own struggles. Jesus could have easily protected Peter and not allowed Satan to sift him, but Jesus had a bigger plan. As Jesus was preparing to face his own death, he was equipping Peter to strengthen his brothers. So then, Jesus prepares himself and his disciples for what he was about to endure. Jesus prepares himself and his disciples for what he was about to endure. Now, Jesus and the disciples, they arrive in Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is a place whose name literally means olive press. Or, I'm sorry, oil press. An oil press or an olive press is a tool that smashes an olive with such pressure that all of its oil content is removed from the olive. I find it interesting that such a place is where Jesus spends his last night suffering unbelievable anguish before his crucifixion. Let's look at the map again. Gethsemane is located on a slope of the Mount of Olives just across the Kindred Valley from Jerusalem. Jesus frequently went to Gethsemane with his disciples to pray. This location is best known today for the events that occurred on the night before his crucifixion when Jesus was betrayed. When they arrived at the garden, Jesus gave his disciples instructions to sit here and pray. Then Jesus takes three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. He takes them with him into the garden to pray. And he probably chose these three men because they were prominent leaders of the 12 disciples. Now, this was an amazing privilege for these men to support and observe Jesus as he battles his humanity during these final moments before he is betrayed and taken away. He tells the three disciples that his soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. 
Jesus was inviting them to watch him struggle and conquer his human nature as he prays to his father. Can you imagine having a front row seat for this event? This should have been an easy task and fascinating, to which we will later learn that they didn't do so well. Jesus only went a short distance from the disciples when he fell to the ground and prayed. While on his knees, Jesus cried out to his father, if it is possible, then let this hour pass from me. If it is possible, let this hour pass from me. Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. At this moment, Jesus' human emotions became very real. Jesus was fully man, and he was fully God. He was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus was being pressed from every side. And he was feeling the extreme weight of the burden he had to carry. There is nothing in the Bible that compares to the anguish and agony that Jesus suffered in Gethsemane. Nothing in the Bible that compares to the anguish and agony that he suffered in Gethsemane. In the book of Matthew, chapter 26, Jesus prays, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You notice the difference between that verse and the one I read earlier? The one I read earlier said, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. And yet later, during his second prayer, Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You see how Jesus is now submitting to his Father. The first one he's saying to take this cup away. The, the, the second one he's saying if it's possible that this cup to be taken away, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, then may your will be done. These prayers reveal Jesus' mindset just before the crucifixion and his total submission to the will of God. The cup, which Jesus refers, is what today I am going to call the fifth cup. The cup revealing the suffering that Jesus was about to endure. In last week's message, Pastor Jeff shared with us the significance of the four cups of wine that were used during the Passover feast. Do you remember this slide for those of you who were here? Each cup representing a promise from God's covenant to the people of Israel. The first cup represents God's salvation from the harsh labor that they were suffering under the Egyptians. This was just before the Passover plague swept through Egypt. The second represented their rescue from slavery 
The third represented Christ's redemption for them. The fourth represented the promise that God will take them as his own people. And as I was preparing for this message, I realized there was another cup. I saw Pastor Jeff a couple days later at Bible study, and, and right after Bible study, as we were heading out, I ran up to him and said, Jeff, there's a fifth cup that is not mentioned until the garden. It's the cup that only Jesus can drink from. It's the cup that mankind deserved. It's the cup full of bitterness and nastiness and yuckiness and ickiness and all of the bad things that you could possibly think of. And yet, it was given to Jesus with the expectation that he would drink all of it. That terrible cup with all of that nastiness in it. No wonder Jesus petitions the Father to let this cup pass from him. He expresses a natural desire to avoid pain and suffering. Now, folks, we have to remember that Jesus is fully God, and he's also fully human. His human nature, though perfect, still struggled with the need to accept the torture and shame that awaited him. His flesh cringed at the mere thought of the cross. Earlier, Jesus said to his disciples, if the spirit is willing, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In Jesus praying to let this cup pass from him, Jesus was battling the flesh and its desire for self-preservation and comfort. Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, I have to believe that there was some real fear in Jesus that he might possibly die in the garden and not fulfill his Father's will. He was anguished to the point of death. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think it's true. I think that Jesus was suffering so much that he even thought he might die before he could even get to the cross. His struggle was so intense that in Luke's gospel, Luke twenty-two forty-four, we see that Jesus' sweat was like drops of blood. Jesus' sweat was like drops of blood. The passage reads, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like drops of blood, falling to the ground. You might ask, is this even possible? Is it possible for someone to sweat blood? Yes, it is. Hematidrosis is a rare but very real medical condition where one sweat will contain blood. The sweat glands are surrounded by tiny blood vessels. These vessels could constrict 
and then dilate to the point of rupture where the blood will then infuse into the sweat glands. It's cause extreme anguish. Folks, it's a real thing. He sweat, drops of blood. The agony was so strong, so heavy, the burden was so heavy that he was sweating drops of blood. Mark 8.31 says, And he began to teach them, The son must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. Jesus knew of what was to come. The agony that he faced was more than physical. It would be spiritual and emotional as well. Jesus knew that God's will was to crush him. He knew that his father's will was to crush him. Jesus was fully aware of all that was going to happen. He knew in painstaking detail the events that would follow soon after he was betrayed by one of his very own disciples. He knew he was about to undergo several trials where all of the witnesses against him would lie. He knew that many who hailed him as the Messiah only days earlier would now be screaming for his crucifixion. He knew he would be flogged nearly to the point of death before they pounded metal spikes into his flesh. He knew the prophetic words of Isaiah in 52.14, which was spoken seven centuries earlier, that he would be beaten so badly that he would be disfigured beyond that of any man and beyond any human likeness. He'd be disfigured beyond that of any man and beyond human likeness. Certainly, these things factored into his great anguish and sorrow, causing him to sweat drops of blood. Jesus knew that drinking the cup that we deserve would sever his perfect relationship with his Father. God hates sin. By drinking that cup until his resurrection, Jesus became sin. Why would Jesus go through all of this agony? In Isaiah chapter 53, it says that he will be pierced for our transgressions and through his wounds we will be healed. You see, Jesus loves mankind, but his humanity dreaded the pain and sorrow he faced and it drove him to pray to his father and ask him to let this cup passed from me. This prayer contains two important qualifications. First, he prays, if it is possible, if there is 
any other way to redeem mankind, Jesus asks to take that other way. The events following his prayer shows that there was no other way. Jesus Christ is the only possible sacrifice to redeem the world. Second, Jesus prays, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was committed to the will of God, body, mind, and soul. In Matthew 6.10, Jesus says, The prayer of the righteous is always dependent on the will of God. The prayer of the righteous is always dependent on the will of God. Have you ever pleaded with God to give you something that you really wanted, but it wasn't really what God wanted for you? Have you ever done that? Maybe your car of 20 years died. It served you well, and you took really good care of it. So you ask God to reward you for your good stewardship by giving you a, a Tesla so that you could drive to work in style and show everybody how God has blessed you. And yet, God gave you a Prius so that you could drive to work with a humble attitude. Now, those of you who own Priuses, I'm sorry, it was, you know, I had to pick cars. <laughs> On a more serious note, maybe it was to cry out to God, to heal a loved one, and yet God chose to take them home. For me, it was crying out for God to protect my first wife, and yet he allowed her life to be taken. God is going to give us what we need, when we need it, to accomplish his plan. God is going to give us what we need, when we need it, to accomplish his plan. I work with pastors and leaders all over the world. And if you were to ask any of them, especially the ones who really know me, what I would tell them when they ask for things that they feel that they deserve you know, those things that God should bless them with because they're suffering and doing his work. After I tell them that God doesn't need them to do his work, he's going to accomplish his work with or without them. God only asks them to be a part of what he's already going to do. Then I tell them, God will always give us what he wants us to ask him for. God will always give us what he wants us to ask him for. God wants us to seek his will. Twice, Jesus asked his father to remove the cup of wrath that he was about to drink, but each time he submitted to the father's will. When he was exceedingly sorrowful unto death, he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. God knew the physical pain that Jesus was suffering. And in Luke twenty-two forty-three, 43, 
God sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. Did you catch that? As Jesus was suffering, God knew the physical pain that he was dealing with, and God sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. In Gethsemane, Jesus conquered the flesh and kept it in subjection to the spirit. He did this through earnest prayer and intense willful submission to God's plan. When we face trials, it's good to remember that Jesus knows what it's like to want God's will and yet not want it. I'll say that again. Jesus knows what it's like to want God's will and yet not want it. To act out of love, yet dread the hurt that often results. To desire righteousness and obedience, even when the flesh is screaming out against it. This conflict is not sinful. It's human. It's not sinful. It's human. In Hebrews 2.17, it says that our Savior was fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. He had come to seek and save the lost. And he accomplished his mission even though it meant drinking the cup of suffering to the bitter end. If God sent an angel to Jesus when he needed strength and to persevere, then we need to trust that God will do the same for us. If God sent an angel to Jesus when he needed strength to persevere, then we need to trust that God will do the same for us. I'm sure that many of you, I'm sure that we have all heard people say that God is cruel and unfair. We hear that all the time. At least I hear it all the time. People will say, well, God, he's just cruel and unfair. And maybe you're one of those people here today who might be asking how a loving God can turn his back on his son. How can a God of love allow bad things to happen? I don't have the perfect answer. But I do have faith that God has a bigger plan than I am ever going to know. A bigger plan than I will ever understand. Just imagine for a moment being on the receiving end of Jesus' prayer. Imagine your child crying out to you, Daddy, Mommy, please don't let me suffer the pain that's about to come. I don't want to die. Please remove this curse from me. Isn't there another way? Isn't there another way? There was no other way. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. We have to remember that God loved us so much, he sent his only son to die for us. Only Jesus could bear all of the sins of all of mankind for all of eternity so that by simply believing in him, we could spend all eternity with God the Father, Jesus Christ, his only son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe that God suffered the death of his son as any father would. He could not look at what his son represented after drinking from the cup. Can you imagine the pain to turn your back and not be able to look because of what you had to look at? That was how God saw his son. Yet, it's because of God's love for us that his son, Jesus Christ, chose to embrace the cup. It's because of his love for us that Jesus Christ chose to embrace the cup. Jesus suffered as a man who had no sin, yet he became sin, he crushed the sin, he conquered death, he rose from the dead, so that we, you and I, might become the righteousness of God. Amen? My friends, that's love. It's amazing that even during this great distress, Jesus shows compassion for his disciples. After Jesus finished praying, he went to check on the disciples. They were only a stone's throw away. They weren't too far. And Jesus asked his disciples. He had asked his disciples to just watch and pray. And what did they do? They slept. Jesus was only a short distance away from his disciples. I'm sure they could hear him crying out to his father in prayer. And yet, they slept. Three times, Jesus had to wake them and remind them to pray so that they would not fall into temptation. Yet, they slept. Now, being fully God and fully man, Jesus knew the hearts of these men. He could understand their struggle to stay awake. They were already beginning to lose their battle against the flesh. In verse 38, Jesus once again says, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus wanted to prepare them for not only what Jesus was going to face, but also the doubts, the fears, the struggles that they would face after Jesus was taken away to be crucified. This was especially sad because Peter, well, Peter did fall into temptation and later that night when three times he denied even knowing Jesus. Yet even during this sad reality, Jesus shows amazing grace, compassion, and self-control. Jesus shows amazing grace, 
compassion, and self-control. Now it's approximately 12 a.m. The hour has come. Judas arrives with an armed crowd from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Verse 41 of Mark 14 says, when he goes to check on the disciples, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus didn't fight the crowd. He didn't run away. He woke his disciples up and then went to greet those who would ultimately crucify him. He didn't fight. He didn't run. He woke up his disciples and went to greet those who would ultimately crucify him. Jesus identified, or Judas identified Jesus with the prearranged signal of a kiss, which he gave to Jesus. The kiss was a common custom which showed a very high level of respect. Very, very high level of respect. Which made Judas's kiss that much more painful and the depth of its betrayal beyond comprehension. I'm not sure how Jesus did take Judas out with a lightning bolt right there on the spot, because that's what I would have done. But Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. He didn't show any anger toward Judas. On the contrary, he called Judas his friend. That one event in and of itself to call Judas his friend showed grace, compassion, and self-control in a way that only Jesus could. Then someone close to Jesus, whose name is not mentioned, but most scholars believe it was Peter, who took a sword and attacked a man named Malchus, the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And Jesus rebuked Peter and miraculously healed the man's ear. Now, once again, I was thinking that while Jesus had them wowed with the healing of Malchus, I would have wiped them out with a lightning bolt. And I don't know why the lightning bolt is, but I just, through just one request of his father. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 26, 53 said, Do you think that I cannot appeal my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? And then he said, but how then should the scripture be fulfilled? It must be so. Jesus had the power to do whatever he wanted to end the terrible night and not suffer any longer. But he clearly understood what he needed to do to redeem mankind. Nevertheless, they arrested him and took him to Pontius Pilate while the disciples scattered in fear for their lives. Now, now, now to, although the others had fled, Peter still followed Jesus after his arrest, but he kept his distance so that he wouldn't be identified with him. There's no question that he was scared. From the courtyard, Peter watched Jesus being falsely accused, beaten, 
and insulted. Peter was afraid Jesus would die. And he was fearful of his own life. The world hated Jesus. And Peter found that he was not prepared to face the ridicule and persecution that Jesus was suffering. I'm sure that he recalled earlier conversations when Jesus warned his disciples that if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Peter quickly found that he wasn't nearly as brave as he thought he would be. What about you? How would you do if you were given the same opportunity to be with Jesus in the garden on that final night? How would you do? Are you strong enough to persevere? Something to think about. And then we have the last two verses, which I find a little bit odd, but we'll go with it. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Okay. <laughs> Who is this guy? That's <laughs> a weird way to end a message. <laughs> Some scholars would say that this man was John Mark, the writer of this book. Some guess it was an angel who showed up as a young man in the tomb. Some say Joseph of Arimathea because he wrapped Jesus in a linen garment, and so there's some symbolic connection. <laughs> the list goes on and on, but there's no solid proof that anyone knows who he is. I'll call it one of the mysteries of the Bible. <laughs> So in closing, the beginning of mankind began in a garden. Then Adam sinned against God and death entered into the world. Thousands of years later, Jesus Christ entered into another garden to accept the cup of mankind's wrath from his father's hand. That following morning at 9 a.m., the third hour, Jesus would be nailed to the cross. Later that day, he would die. Sin would then be crushed and death would be swallowed up in victory. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, went to the garden because he believed that you were worth the cost of his suffering. The question that I have for you today is, do you feel that your fight with the flesh is keeping you from accepting the suffering Savior's sacrifice for you? If you would like to have someone pray with you this morning, please come and see myself or Pastor Jeff or one of the elders. I'm sure we could all just kind of hang back and wait if somebody wanted to come up and have prayer. I'm going to ask Pastor Jeff to come and to, to close out this message. Thanks, Tony. Uh, would you uh, pray with me? Would you bow? Heavenly Father, it is hard to wrap our mind around 
the fact that you poured out your wrath uh, on Christ, your Son, for us.